Years ago, I had a team of youth in Zambia. One particular morning, we were getting ready to go out on missions, and so we had the breakfast to have, and I encouraged them to get in line for breakfast. We had it all laid out. There was cereal, and then toast, and then milk. So they were all lined up, and well, as they were getting their food, one of the girls at the back of the line decided that she didn't like being at the back of the line, and so she did something I had never seen before. She's tired of waiting. She went to the other end of the table. She got her bowl, and she poured the milk into her bowl first. I watched, wondering if she was just going to use the bowl like a cup, and then smiled when then she went and added cereal to her bowl. I had never seen that before. In my experience, you always added the milk to your cereal, not the cereal to your milk. It was unconventional, but it worked, and so while we made fun of her for most of the day, we mostly let it go. Well, the truth is, most of us, we're like her. We just don't like being told what we have to do. And even more than that, we don't like being told how we have to do it. The, the my way or the highway thing just doesn't seem to fly with us unless we are the ones saying it. Frank Sinatra's song, I Did It My Way, seems to typify how we want to live our lives. It's just that we don't like being put in a box, do we? And most of the time, we don't have to be. After all, our world is full of options. You want to go to Toronto? Well, there's several ways you can get there. Want to go on a mission trip? Pick an agency. The world is your playground. Want to show love? Well, there's a book that says there's five love languages, so pick one. Want to invest your money? Well, countless banks are willing to take it. Want to own your bu a business someday? Maybe go to school. Maybe just work hard. Maybe just get to know the right people. Who says my way is better than your way? As long as you get it done or get what you want, how you get there just doesn't seem to matter to most people. Well, it's, it's probably because of that, that the kind of, that kind of thinking that when we come across a verse like the one we come across today, there's just something about it that rubs us the wrong way. There, there's just something inside of us that wants to rebel against it, that wants to say, hold on a minute, that can't be the case. The verse, it's found in John chapter 14. It was a statement that Jesus made as he was trying to comfort his disciples by assuring them that while he was leaving, he would return. You see, it's just that the disciples, they picked up that when Jesus said he was leaving, that he was likely meaning that he was going to die. And Jesus had been their leader. They had followed him for the better part of three years. And so most of them didn't even have a clue what they would do if Jesus died. Well, what's more, Jesus was their friend. So the idea of him dying, it didn't sit well. Jesus knew it. He could see that they were troubled. And so Jesus told them that he was going to prepare a place for them, but would return to get them, hoping to comfort them. But when Jesus went on to tell them that they knew the place where he was going, Thomas, one of the disciples, said to him, We don't know where you're going, Lord, so how can we know the way? And Jesus replied by saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus responded not by telling Thomas that he could follow him or saying, Thomas, come on, you've walked with me for three years. You've got to know salvation is in me. But by making these three profound claims, if not four profound claims, Claims that spoke to why he came in the first place and what he was about to do the very next day on the cross. Claims that must have shocked Thomas and the other disciples. After all, Jesus didn't just claim to know the way or understand the truth. He claimed to be the way and the truth. Well, over the last three weeks, if you've been in one of our, our sites, you've been looking at these three claims. After all, every one of them is important. We started with the claim that Jesus made that he is the way. For Jesus' Jewish followers, it was a claim that would have sounded out of place. After all, for them, the way, well, that was the way to God the Father, the way to be made right with God. For centuries, the way it had been established, God had given them the way. 
the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, that inner part of the temple. They'd enter it once a year to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people for their sins, to make atonement for them. In essence, it would delay, it would appease God's wrath and give them another year of God's favor. It was the way. Of course, the problem was it only bought them more time. The pile of sins each year just grew larger. Still, that is what what was done, what God had told them. And yet here, Jesus had told them that he was the way, that he was the curtain, that, that rather than the high priest passing through the curtain into the Holy of Holies to be made right with God, to, to make the people right with God, that you and I could be made right with God through him. And, and rather than just delay the judgment, that Jesus would forever open the way and deal with the judgment once and for all. Jesus made a way for us to be right with God by being the way for us. A fact that must have hit home for the disciples when they heard that the temple curtain was ripped from top to bottom when Jesus died and the way was open. Jesus claimed to be the truth was also astounding for the Greeks of that time, for most people of our day. Truth is relative, isn't it? What is true today might not be true tomorrow, and what is true for you might or might not be true for me. At least that's what we think or what our society teaches, that truth is what you make it out to be. And yet Jesus claimed to be the truth, making truth objective, absolute, making truth knowable. See, for the truth to be truth, there must be, have behind it what is real. Telling the truth is just revealing what is real. And since Jesus is the ultimate reality, the one that determined what is real, the one that made what is real, he is the source of truth, the ground zero of truth. But not only that, no more than that, by claiming to be the truth, he was telling us that he was the truth of who God was on display for us, that by looking at him, we could see who we were in contrast to that. His words were truth. His promises of life were the truth. Jesus' third claim, it was just as amazing. Jesus went on to say that he was the life. By being the life, Jesus was claiming that he had the ability to breathe new life, to give life to what was dead. Now, the disciples had seen that before. They had seen Jesus raise Jairus' daughter, the widow's son, and they had seen Lazarus walk out of the tomb. And yet Jesus' statement here was more than that. You see, Jesus wasn't just saying that he could give physical life, but that he could give eternal life. In essence, he could reverse the effects of being born in sin, being born dead in our sins. And he could reverse that and give us a way to live forever with him in heaven. Each claim was remarkable. Each was something we celebrated, but Jesus wasn't done. Instead, he went on to say, no one comes to God the Father but through me. Jesus claimed to be the only way. And that, well, let's be honest, that doesn't sit so well in our world, does it? I mean, couldn't Jesus said that his way was our way? Our society would have been better with that. Or even say that it was his way. But to say he was the only way? It's just so narrow. After all, by saying that, he's saying that, well, you might have a way, whatever it is, it just doesn't work. That while doing good might be your way to make it to heaven, that is your plan for your good deeds to outweigh your bad. That While that might be your plan, it is not the way. So do good and but if heaven is, and salvation is your goal, that is not a path that will get you there. That while other religions might be your way, they are not the way. So believe in them if you want, but they aren't truth, nor will they make it, make it so that you can make it to heaven. Here Jesus is saying that this way, his way, through him is the only way. Now, truthfully, that's something that makes sense when you stop and think about it. After all, think about the context in which Jesus said this. He had just told the disciples that he was going to die, a death that would enable him to be the way, the truth, and the life. 
and yet a death that was going to be anything but pleasant. In fact, so unpleasant was it that Scripture tells us that Jesus, knowing it was coming that night before, as we read, went into the garden and prayed. So intense was his prayer that he sweated blood. That's just how stressful what was about to happen was. So, so don't you think if there was another way, he would have taken it? I mean, why else would he go through with it if another religion would work, if, if another way would work? So stressful was it that he even asked God to take the cup away if it was possible. After all, the events of that night and the next day were terrible. They were horrifying. From an arrest and betrayal by a friend to being abandoned by his followers and subjected to a legal trial by the Jews to being spat on and hit when he didn't respond. All were horrifying, and yet they were far from the worst part. The gospel tells us that they then marched Jesus before Pilate and hired Herod and back to Pilate, and he endured more mocking and ridicule. Still, that wasn't the worst part. Nor was hearing the crowd yell, crucify him. The very ones he had created, the ones that owed their existence to him, rejecting him. Nor was it the flogging, although flogging was anything but pleasant. Especially since a Roman whip isn't like a Western whip we're used to. The Roman cat of nine tails was several whips tied together at the handle. Each individual braided whip had pieces of metal and sharp bones glued on the end of them. So when the whip would strike the flesh, instead of leaving these nice, clean cuts, they would dig into the flesh and stay. The flogger would have to pull the whip out, taking chunks of flesh with it. After several blows, the back, the back would be so shredded, often the spine was exposed. The lacerations would tear into the muscles and produce quivering ribbage of flesh, laying bare veins, exposing organs. Roman floggings, it consisted of 30-line lashes, but... It really just mattered on the mood that the Roman soldier was in. They often gave more. Often people died for them. As you can imagine, the pain would have been overwhelming. But I don't think that was the worst part. Some they say, well, maybe it was the cruel game they played where the soldiers take them, took him into the praetorium, maybe 100 or 200 soldiers, and dressed him up like a king. Treated him like they would a revolutionary, a violent rebel. And yet he wasn't a revolutionary. He was the king of kings. They made him move around the, the floor on a cruel board game. They gave him a, a piece of wood, a staff as a royal scepter, and then took it from him and beat him over the head with it again and again and spat at him. Jesus, the creator of everything, was turned into a joke, a hoax. Yeah, I don't think that was the worst part either. To be honest, I don't even think it was the trip to Golgotha carrying the cross piece, even though the weight of a rough beam pressing in on his fleshly torn skin would have been terrible. Sure, the insults from the crowd, the spitting of the crowd, the jeering of the soldiers wasn't any, was anything but pleasant, but even that wasn't the worst, nor the nailing to the cross as they drove nails into his hands and feet. Something one medical doctor described this way. The Romans used spikes that were five to seven inches long and tapered to a fine point. They were driven through the wrists, which were considered part of the hand in Roman times. The spike would have hit and crushed the median nerve, causing a pain that was so beyond description that a new word was invented to describe it, excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. Think of it like this. Think of the pain when you hit your elbow's funny bone, which is actually hitting a nerve. Then take a pair of pliers, squeeze and crush that nerve. That's the kind of pain Jesus was feeling in his arms all the time, feeling in his feet all the time. 
but that wasn't the worst. Nor, nor was the hoisting up of the cross or the pain that he must have continually felt as with each breath he had to rub his back raw up and down against that rough unfinished wood or rather pushing down on his feet against the bones in his feet, the nails, the, the pain of it. Nor was the worst part the flies that would have been there landing on him that he could not swat away or the dehydration that would have set in as the heat loss, the heat and the blood loss would overcome, producing a pounding headache that he could not do anything about, or the cramping of his arms and legs, which he couldn't stretch out as he was hanging there. Of all the ways to die, all forms of torture man has ever created, crucifixion is one of the worst. It, it's cruel, it's inhumane. It left its victims naked with no rights, no reputation to die of suffocation or exposure. It was commonplace back then. Common enough that the horror of it had worn off so that people would actually stand around and watch, all too happy to poke fun and ridicule those being crucified, somehow getting some sadistic pleasure out of trying to break the person's spirit while their body was being shattered. But I don't think that was worst, the worst part. No, the worst part was yet to come. In fact, it didn't happen until Jesus had been on the cross about three hours when darkness fell and Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Words that would have pierced the silence. Jesus, he had withstood the beatings. He, he withstood the mock trial. He watched in silence as those he loved walked away. He watched the guards barter for his clothes. He didn't retaliate when they insulted him or hurt him or pierced his hands and feet. But when God the Father turned his head, Jesus wailed. It was too much to remain silent. My God, the holy heart was broken. Why have you abandoned me? Never have words carried so much hurt. Never has one been so lonely. Loneliness was, was something Jesus had never experienced before. Sure, he had been forsaken. He, his own brothers didn't believe in him or follow him. His fellow citizens they from his hometown tried to kill him. The nation he came to did not receive him. Many of those first disciples that started to follow him, turned away, and were with him no more. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. They all walked, forsook him. But in this cry, it's as though Jesus was saying, I can understand why my fellow citizens, why my nations might forsake me, for darkness has no fellowship with light. I can understand my own disciples because of the weakness of the flesh, but why you? Up until that moment, when he was forsaken by man, he was able to turn to God the Father, but now... Even that was denied him, and he is absolutely alone, truly God-forsaken. You know, we use that phrase, God-forsaken. We use it to describe a scene of utter, utmost desolation, a forsaking of someone in a state of defeat or helplessness in the midst of a horrible circumstance, a child forsaken by their parents, a, a friend be, forsaken by a, a friend in an hour of need. But here, Jesus is forsaken by God the Father, forsaken by the one and with whom he had enjoyed eternal fellowship. The abandonment must have been agony. And yet it was the only way. God's holiness was just too perfect. Our sin, just too evil. Justice had to be paid, and Jesus took it. During those hours, the scripture tells us that he that was no sin was made sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He took my place. He took your place. Jesus bore the divine punishment for our sin, and all the righteous wrath of God for was poured out on him. 
There's an ancient picture there, really, the, the neglected sacrifice all alone. In the Old Testament, we find it described as, as part of the old way, a part of the Day of Atonement. You see, while the Israelites would sacrifice one goat as a sacrifice, an innocent victim substituted in our place, they would also take a second goat. And they would send that goat away. A priest would receive it. He put his hands on it. And in a somber ceremony, he would proclaim all the sins of the people on it. All the lusting, all the adultery, all the cheating were symbolically transferred from the people to the goat, to the scapegoat. The goat was then carried to the edge of the town, to the edge of the wilderness and released, banished. Sin was purged, must be purged. So the scapegoat was abandoned and the people were relieved. God had been appeased. The goat was all alone. Well, like the scapegoat, Jesus was all alone on that cross. As every lie ever told, every covet, object ever coveted, every promise ever broken was spoken on him. It was put on his shoulders. He became sin, and God the Father turned away. Jesus bore it all. Jesus' despair was darker than the sky. The two that had been one for eternity were now two. Jesus was abandoned, the Trinity was dismantled, and the God had disjointed. And in that moment, God poured out his wrath on him. You know, it would be dreadful for us to suffer the fierceness and wrath of the Almighty God for just a minute. But Scripture tells us we deserve it for far more than a minute, that we deserve it for eternity. That we've all fall short of the glory of God, and that the wages of that is death, separation from God and hell forever. Jonathan Edwards described it this way. As, this, the, as a place this way, where there will be no end to this horrible misery, where even after millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance, there will be no end. Well, that is what Jesus bore in those moments on the cross. Not, not for himself, not at all for himself, but for all of us. He bore it all for us. He took our suffering on himself and faced the punishment we deserved. Well, why would Jesus do that? Why would he do that if there was another way? If another religion would work? If good works would do? Why would he go through with that? The pain, the abandonment, why? He wouldn't. But because there was no other way, Jesus became the way. He became the truth on display. The, the truth of what we deserve for our sins. The truth of the, how righteous God is and yet how incredible loving he is towards us as he made a way to give us eternal life by conquering sin and death once and for all, for all those that would follow him. Charles Wesley was a reformer. He started preaching the gospel long before he knew the gospel, long before he had peace with God. But one day after preaching for a while, he became gravely ill. It seemed like he was going to die. And a young Moravian named Peter, was, who was with him, training with him to be a missionary, approached Charles and said, Charles, do you have hope to be saved? And Charles said, yes. And Peter said, well, for what reason do you hope for it? And Charles responded, because I've used my best endeavors to serve God. Peter simply shook his head and said no more. But that sad, silent shake of his head shattered Charles' false foundation of salvation by doing good. Peter later taught him Jesus is the way, the, the way to find peace with God. And, and Charles came to faith. And so on that occasion, he wrote that hymn we sometimes sing, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my Redeemer's praise. And verse 4 reads this, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Wesley, he understood finally what Jesus did for him and that 
and got it, that it was the only way, that there was nothing else we could put our hope in that would save us. And it was for that very reason that there was no other way, that Jesus didn't turn away when he prayed that night, but instead chose to go to the cross, to endure it all, to make a way for you and I to be saved. A way for us to deal with our sins, to have eternal life, and a relationship with God through him. That is what we gather to remember today. We remember that Jesus made a way for us when there was no way. In Gerd Thiessen's fictional account of the events surrounding the death of Jesus, called The Shadow of the Galilean, he includes this imagined letter written by Barabbas to the main character of his story, Andreas, after the death of Jesus. His letter says this, I'm writing above all to thank you. I've heard how much you did for me. I barely escaped death. The price was high. Another died in my place. Two of my friends were crucified with him. Since then, I've been asking myself, why the other? Why Jesus? Why not me? I know that Jesus is close to your heart. You defended his gentle way of rebellion and rejected my way of resisting. Now I'm indissolubly bound up with him. I keep thinking, what does this mean for me? If he died in my place, then am I obliged to live for him? Well, that response ought to be our same. Our our response as well. We too must ask why. Why would Jesus do this for me? And the Bible is clear that he did it for you, not because you deserved it or even wanted it, but because he loves you and didn't want any of us to perish. He doesn't want anyone to spend eternity in hell, and so he came to give away, to die for us, to make a way that we could be spared and saved. If only we'd put our faith and trust in him. Something I'd urge you to do today if you haven't already. And if you're here or you're listening and that is something you've already done, whatever you do today, don't miss how profound his death is and how his death should leave us with a sense of gratitude like no other, as there was no other way. And don't miss how it should cause you to want to live your life for him, to worship him, and to share the incredible truth of what he's done for us with those around us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, today we thank you for going through unspeakable pain. Father, even today, we didn't describe it the way it would have been. It was far worse than anything I've said. And yet you did that for me, and you did that for those that are sitting here and those that are watching at home. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that you faced abandonment from God so that we wouldn't have to. And Lord, I just pray that if there's anyone here that does not know that, that that has not accepted you as their Savior, that today would be the day. In Jesus' name, amen.